following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. You may remember that when the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping the flocks to announce to them the Messiah had been born, they came with this announcement. They said, don't be afraid. We bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. They were declaring what we've come to know, and that's simply this. Jesus has always been and always will be the source of our greatest joy. And you and I get the privilege to not only encourage one another in that and proclaim that reality to each other, we actually get the privilege to proclaim that good news of great joy to those who have never heard it. From every neighborhood in this city to nations around the world. Why? Because we want as many people as possible to enjoy Jesus. And the task of seeing this good news of great joy taken to the neighborhoods in Richmond and the nations around the world is a task that requires a great deal of sacrifice. Sacrifice of time, of energy, of emotion, and of resource. For the last 11 years, we'll be 11 years old later on in January, for the last 11 years, we have set aside a portion of every dollar that's been generously given to this church for this great task to see those who have never heard the name of Jesus come to hear of the good news of great joy in him here in Richmond and in other parts of the world. And so throughout the month of December, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time each Sunday to let you know what God has been doing through this church for that very mission. Ways in which God has used this church to see this good news of great joy brought to people in this city and brought to people around the world work that is going on to see people that are unreached and even unengaged, like you heard a little bit last week through Adrienne, reached with the gospel. Ways that we've been a part of other places in the world, coming to hear of this good news, and other ways that we've been a part of people in this city coming to hear it. So we're going to take December to kind of talk about it and let you know all the different things that God has been doing towards this end. And we're going to ask that throughout the entire month of December, you would pray and you would ask God how he might lead you to giving towards our 2018 Christmas missions offering. This is going to be a separate offering where 100% of all dollars given go towards this task of seeing this good news of great joy be proclaimed to all people in this city and around the world where God would take us. So we're gonna, you're going to be able to give towards that throughout the entire month. If you look on the inside of your worship guide, there's a little bit of information about that and about where you can give, but we're gonna talk about it each week along with stories of what God has been doing and, and what we hope he will continue to do through this church for his glory. So uh, with that being said and kind of that in your, in your mind now, let me pray and then we'll, we'll jump into what he has for us in his word this morning. Father, we thank you that you have brought us together, that you have woken us up by your grace, that you have done something in our hearts this morning, even for some of us, if we're not sure of what is even going on, you have brought us here that we might hear from you through your word. So this morning we ask that you would do the very thing. And we, we have this confident expectation that you're going to do it, that you will, you will speak to us through your word and that your spirit together with your word will do the work of continuing to change our hearts. That's what we want. We want to reflect your son 
We want to display his likeness to a watching world. We want to enjoy him for all that he is. So Lord, we ask that you would do that very thing this morning for his glory, for our joy. Amen. Now, not only is December the season for our missions offering, but the first four Sundays in December, as you've already heard, are the season of Advent. And I'll be really honest with you, I don't know and I don't think anyone really knows the exact historical origins of how Advent came to become a season in the life of the church, what prompted it. There's all different historical stories as to how it happened. But we do know this, as long ago as the late 400s, we have written records in the church of something akin to the season of Advent being initiated. Lots of scholars, lots of church historians will trace it back to a man in the Catholic Church who is known as St. Martin. St. Martin became Bishop of Rome at one point, and in his time, reluctantly serving as bishop, he recognized that the church was not prepared in heart, was not prepared spiritually to celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. Already when he became bishop, the church was, was going through a season of what you and I know as Lent, it was a 40-day season where the church would fast and pray and prepare their heart for celebrating Easter, the resurrection. So Martin, in his time as bishop, began to institute a fast preparing for Christmas. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from late November up into Christmas Sunday, he would call the church to fast and to prepare and to pray to celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. This, this came to be known as St. Martin's Lent. Some of you, if you grew up in the Catholic Church or some of you who spent time in other parts of the world, you may have heard of that. You may have seen it celebrated. But this was what many church historians believe to be the beginning of what morphed into what you and I know as Advent. It was a time when the church would focus specifically on a spiritual preparation of heart to celebrate the first coming of Christ being born on this earth as we live our lives in preparation for the second coming of Christ when he returns. How are we spiritually prepared to live in between the two comings of Christ? This is what Advent became to be a season of, of focus and preparation for. Now, I do not know how it went from being fasting three times a week to eating chocolate every single day. That's probably an American thing, I don't know. But I know that I grew up with the Advent season solely being a, a calendar that you would open and there'd be a piece of chocolate behind it. And maybe you read a story, maybe you read a verse, maybe you did something, but you had to do whatever you had to do to get that door open to get that chocolate. I don't know how it went from fasting to chocolate, but it did. But however it happened, and whether you use wreaths or whether you tell stories or whatever Advent tradition you may have grown up in, Advent in itself means coming. And it is the season in the life of the church when we consider and give special attention to the preparation of our hearts to celebrate with great gratitude and great joy the coming of Christ to this earth, Emmanuel, God with us, as we prepare for his imminent return in glory. That's what Advent is. And somewhere along the line, the church settled in on the themes of love and hope and peace and joy. So this Advent season, here's what we're going to do. I honestly believe that, that God was very kind to us 
when we found ourselves in the seasonal schedule of preaching through the book of Philippians, getting to Advent and having to look at Philippians chapter four, verses one through nine. I think he was very kind to us because in these verses, Paul gets very practical with regards to how you and I are to live in the time between Jesus' birth and his return. We get a layup considering how the truth of his birth and the promise of his return are meant to shape us today. And then as I read these first nine verses, I want you to listen. And I want you to listen for the themes of joy, of love, of peace. And we'll talk this morning about hope. So if you've got your Bibles, Philippians chapter four, I'm gonna read the first nine verses this morning, but we're gonna spend our time specifically considering verse one. Let's read them all. Philippians four, starting in verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Synchtyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we're going to walk through all of those verses during the Advent season, but this morning, we're going to keep our attention on verse 1. And as we do, I want us to consider how, in the time between Jesus' first coming and his promised return, you and I can stand firm with hope. Stand firm with hope. Now, Paul starts this transitional point in his letter that we have as chapter four. He starts it with a bang, with a huge and weighty word. Therefore, this word is massive because this word gives context to all the counsel that Paul is going to give us. All the direction that Paul is going to give us for how our lives are lived between the comings of Christ in the last part of this letter. All the counsel to be reconciled, to be reasonable, to be prayerful, to be thoughtful. All of it is given in the context of this therefore. Therefore means in light of. So if we're going to understand the context for Paul's call for us to stand firm, we're going to have to understand what we stand firm in light of. So you just have to go back a few verses. You can go back to chapter 3 verse 9. We stand firm in light of the fact that we are found in Jesus with his righteousness. Or verse 17, in light of the example of Paul's faithfulness to us. 
Or verse 18, we stand firm in light of the tragic end that comes to those who have made themselves enemies of the cross. We stand firm in light of verse 20, the reality of our heavenly citizenship. We stand firm in light of verse 21, the imminent return of Jesus. In light of God's continued grace to us in Christ and the promised realities yet to come. In light of the truths of eternity we talked about two weeks ago, stamped on our eyes. In light of these things, we stand firm. But let's be fair to all that Paul has said. You can go back even further. If you want to talk about the context that Paul gives for this call to the church to live lives standing firm, you can go all the way back to how he began. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6. In light of the fact that God has begun a good work in you that he will complete. Or verse 7. In light of the fact that we are partakers of God's grace together. Or verse 10. In light of the fact that God will make us pure and blameless for Jesus' return. Or verse 21, in light of the fact that even if we lose everything on this earth because we follow Jesus, he's worth it. Or if we go back to chapter 1, verse 23, in light of the fact that being with Jesus would be better than being here. Or go back to chapter 2, verse 1, in light of the fact that union with Jesus brings us encouragement, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. Or back to chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that Jesus is king and one day everyone will bend their knee to him as Lord. Or back to chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, in light of the fact that God is deeply at work in us for his glory and our joy. And you can go through the rest of the letter up to where chapter 3, verse 9 started. In light of all of this, in light of God's continued grace to us in his son, his promised grace to us for eternity, stand firm. In the time between Jesus' comings, his birth and his promised return, Paul is calling the church to a life of joy-driven, grace-driven, hope-steadied endurance. In light of God's grace, in light of the glorious gospel riches that are yours in Jesus, in light of these things, you and I are to stand firm. Now before Paul continues to talk to us and give direction and counsel as to what our lives look like as we live them out, don't miss that Paul grounds the call, Paul grounds the command to stand firm, Paul grounds the commands to be reconciled, to be prayerful and be thoughtful. Paul grounds all of these things in the grace of God. The grace of God is always the ground on which all of God's commands are rooted and stand. But Paul's command, Paul's call to the church to stand firm here in chapter 4. It's actually the, the bookend to the whole thesis of the letter because if you were with us when we have been going through this, you might remember in chapter 1 verse 27, Paul really began his, his major point, his major message in this letter and it started there with a call to stand firm. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said that you and I are to let the manner of our life be worthy of the gospel. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about that, how our overwhelming ambition as followers of Jesus are to live in such a way that our lives put on display the joy that is found in Jesus and put on display that Jesus is worth it. 
A world is to watch us and observe us and interact with us and walk away with the reality that Jesus is worth it. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And when Paul sets that thesis statement for the letter, he begins to unpack it. And right after he says that, he says that, so whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. And he goes from there up to where we are in chapter 4, unpacking that big thesis of the letter. Stand firm. But he also reminds us of this. It's not just the fact that in light of God's grace to us in the past, in light of the glorious gospel riches that are ours in Jesus, we are to stand. There's something else. Therefore also means in light of the present context in which we live. The present context in which that church lived. In light of, yes, God's glorious riches to them that he has taught them and reminded them of throughout the letter, he also means in light of what he said in chapter 3, verse 2, that there are going to be those amongst you who want to distort the gospel. There are going to be those around you who want to convince you that you somehow have to prove your worth to God and your obedience to God through your zeal. That somehow God is going to accept you not solely on the basis of your faith in Christ, but through your good works. There are going to be those around you who are going to distort the gospel and twist the gospel. Stand firm. Don't be swayed. Don't be taken captive. Don't be led off course. Yes, in light of these riches, stand firm. But in light of the present context in which you live and the temptations that abound, stand firm. But it's not just those that are around you that may want to distort the gospel. They may want to twist the gospel that, that, that speak to the, the, the pride and the righteousness of your own heart that wants to lay claim to your capacity to earn your way to God. It's not just that. He also said in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and he said it with tears, you might remember, that there were those when he thought of them that were going to be amongst the church that have set themselves up as enemies of the cross, enemies of the gospel. They're the ones that are tempting God's people towards a life of extreme self-indulgence that leads to a glorying in things that ought to bring them shame. A life of complete self-indulgence that Paul said the end of which is destruction. So therefore means in light not only of God's grace to you, but it means in light of the present context in which you live. The distortions of the gospel that abound, the temptations that come, the power to sway you and pull you away from a sufficient joy and trust in Christ alone in light of these things. Stand firm. What does standing firm look like? How do you stand? What's it look like when we're standing firm? Well, that's what this little word right after the call to stand firm means. Or that's why it's actually there. The verse actually says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. And then what's it say? Thus. That's a weird little word right there. Because when you read it, you just read, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You skip over the thus. So is the, the thus just like an old English, like thou and thy and whatever, and you just kind of get to the big meat of being in the Lord? Well, thus was there specifically by Paul. It was meant to clarify for us this standing firm. 
It was meant to bring clarity to what standing firm looked like and how you actually stand firm. So it does thus help you understand what standing firm looks like and how you actually do it. It doesn't, does it? But when you understand that this thus makes this call to stand firm and brings it forward into our present life, you begin to see an argument that Paul is developing where he's calling us to look backwards with gratitude on the riches of God's grace to us in Christ and all that he's done for us. And then he begins to clarify forward what standing firm and what it looks like and how we do it. And he says standing firm looks like being of the same mind. It looks like rejoicing. It looks like letting your reasonableness be made known. It looks like not being anxious, but praying with all things in thanksgiving. It looks like thinking on all of these things that I have told you. It looks like putting into practice what you have learned and what you have seen. Standing firm looks like these things. How we stand firm is by doing these things. And so we're going to spend the rest of the Advent season kind of unpacking that. And so what you begin to see is that this call to stand firm is an, is an encompassing call to God's people that describes how we live in between the comings of Jesus. It's not a particular thing that we do. Our life is encompassed by this standing firm. And so as we begin walking through these verses, and in the coming weeks we get very specific in how we stand firm and what the standing firm looks like, I just want to make three general observations, so to speak, about standing firm. Three things that we capture in this first verse. And the first one is simply this. Gospel love compels the call to stand firm. The call to stand firm is compelled by gospel love. Now, did you hear the way that Paul spoke about this church? Did you hear the way he talked about them? My brothers, whom I love and long for. That's a homesickness. If you've ever been separated from people that you love, if you've ever been separated from your family, if you've been gone for long periods of time with, with no expectation to get back to them anytime soon, the homesickness is what Paul is talking about. There's an intense longing to be with these people. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Don't overlook these phrases. Don't just read them and pass by them to get to what you think is the meat of what Paul is saying. Recognize that the people that he is writing to, this church, they are near and dear to his heart. By the work of God's grace in his heart, he has a compelling and deep affection for them. And it's his love for them that compels him to call them to endurance. It's the love that Paul has for this church. It's the love that Paul has for these people that compels him to warn them of the dangers that exist. It's the love that Paul has for him, for them that compels him to call them to endure, to give them counsel and direction in their life. His love for them will not allow him to remain silent. Now think about something as you read this. Who inspired Paul to write this letter? Who then preserved this letter graciously for us? 
as you and I come to this letter and we read this letter and we hear these words, whose voice, whose love should we hear calling us to stand this morning? Who out of love for us do we hear calling us to stand firm? Friends, it's it's our Heavenly Father who inspired the love and cultivated the love in Paul's heart by his grace, inspiring him out of love to write to this church, calling them to stand that we hear this morning speaking to us. And not only that, think about those whom you love. Do you love them enough to encourage their endurance? Do you love them enough to encourage them to stand firm? Do you love them enough to expose to them the dangers that are all around? Do you love them enough to call them, like Paul calls this church, to a faithful obedience to the Lord? Friends, this is one of the things that love does. Love compels us to call one another to stand firm. And friends, we need this from each other. See, Paul knew something about his own heart. Paul knew something about the hearts of the people in this church. You know the same thing about your own heart if you're honest and about the hearts of those that you love. We need to hear this call in love to stand firm because we know that endurance in the gospel is not automatic. Standing firm is not automatic. The only thing that is automatic for you and I is drift. That's the only thing that's automatic. Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He wrote about someone they both knew. His name was Demas. And all that Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10 is that Demas had abandoned him and the work of the gospel and had gone back to Thessalonica. Now here's the thing. Demas didn't just wake up one day and instantly decide to abandon Paul and the work of the gospel. It wasn't some instantaneous decision that happened when he woke up because he hadn't had his coffee yet. It was the result of drift. It was allowing the the fixation of his heart, the object of the eyes of his heart, to shift, to drift, to fixate on something other than the joy that was to be found in Christ. See, the truth of the matter is simply this. You and I will become like the things we choose to behold. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he said, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You and I will become like what we choose to behold. If we behold Jesus, we will become increasingly like him. So the more we see Jesus, the more we enjoy Jesus, and the more we enjoy Jesus, the more our lives will display Jesus because we're being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. But here's the thing, fix our eyes, like Paul warned us about of those in chapter 3, verse 18, fix our eyes on superficiality. 
Fix our hearts on immorality. Fix our eyes on the passions, the motives, the values of the world around us. And it's just as equally predictable what we will become. Friends, it takes no effort to be conformed into the image of the world. It's simply the product of drift. Which is why when Paul unpacks the thusly of standing firm, when he talks about what standing firm looks like and how we go about standing firm in the rest of these verses, he's going to focus on what we think about, what we fix our gaze on, what captures our heart. This is part of what it means to stand firm and how we stand firm. But here's the thing we want to just start with in the beginning of this season. The endurance to stand firm is never automatic. It always takes effort. And as we've seen, the gospel is not opposed to effort. The effort that it takes to stand firm in the gospel is not an effort that earns us anything before the Lord. No one has talked about this better for me than a man named Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges was a tremendous gift to the church. If you find yourself in the possession of a Jerry Bridges book, or you want a good book to read, go find any book that Jerry Bridges has written. And in talking about this endurance and this standing firm, Jerry Bridges said this, Christ-centered endurance does not just happen any more than running a marathon or climbing a mountain or having a good marriage just happens. Standing firm or endurance, it requires a good plan with clear and tangible steps that are taken one after the other. The farmer tills the soil. Why? Because the weeds and the rocks and the stones have to be removed. He doesn't wake up, Bridges says, and say, Lord, please remove the weeds. He wakes up and he prays, Lord, give me your strength as I pull these weeds today. See, love compels the call to stand. And we need it because we know that standing firm is never automatic. What's automatic is drift. And it takes effort to stand. But here's the thing. Our standing firm and our enduring is possible because of the hope we have in the gospel. That's the third thing. Standing firm is possible because of the hope we have in the gospel. I didn't try to make those rhyme. It just happens. You know that if you've been around me for much time. I don't try. It just happens. Listen to what Paul says. Stand firm, then you get the little word thusly, but then he says what you already know in your mind. What? Stand firm in the Lord. Our strength to stand firm in the face of great temptation to drift and the power of the current that would pull us along, our strength to stand firm is not found in our determination to do it. It's not found in our tenacity or our grit. It's not found in how many years you've been a follower of Jesus. Our strength to stand firm is grounded in our union with Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. And if we're going to talk about hope, if we're going to allow hope to be a part of our, our Advent season, we're going to have to be clear about what we mean when we talk about hope. Biblical hope is different than the hope that you and I often talk about. So when we talk about hoping that something is going to happen, we're talking about something we want to see happen, but we have a pretty high degree of uncertainty as to whether or not it actually will. So last night I sat down with great hope when I turned the television on that the University of Georgia was going to beat the Alabama Crimson Tide. That's what I wanted to happen. 
but I had a very high degree of uncertainty as to whether or not it was going to happen. So if someone asked me what I hoped for, I hoped that Georgia was win, would win. That's what I wanted, but I was pretty certain it wasn't going to happen. That is not the way the Bible talks about hope. That is not the way hope is spoken about in the scriptures. Let me give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter writing his letters to the church, he says this. You and I are to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are to set our hope fully on the grace that's going to come to us when Jesus returns. Peter does not mean that we should desire that, but be uncertain as to whether it was going to happen. The return of Jesus in glory is not something that the biblical writers were uncertain about. The return of Jesus in glory is not something that you and I are to have any degree of uncertainty about. So when Peter tells us to hope fully, not one word hopefully, but hope fully, hope completely, he means that you and I should be intensely desirous and at the same time fully confident that Jesus is going to come again with grace for his people. That's what hope means. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something in the future. So when you and I say that we can stand firm, that endurance is possible because of the hope of the gospel, this brings everything that Paul has said and is wrapped up in that therefore back into picture in light of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself because we are in him in light of that we can stand firm with hope the confident expectation today and the desire knowing that this very thing is going to happen. Friends, you and I stand firm with the hope of the gospel as with gratitude we dig our heels into the riches of the gospel that are ours. As we look back with gratitude to what God has accomplished for us in Jesus, through his first coming, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, through his promised and imminent return, we fix our eyes on him and we look forward in hope. The gratitude that we have as we encourage ourselves, as long as it's called today in the gospel, as we go and encourage one another to continue to see Jesus and enjoy Jesus, the gratitude that we have for what God has done for us fuels and builds the hope that enables us to stand. There is a confident expectation that what God has promised and what we desire is going to happen. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but each week when we respond to God's word together by receiving communion, it's our hope that God is cultivating. See, as a follower of Jesus, when you come forward and you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, you are actually proclaiming something, Paul said. You're actually declaring something. You're not using it in your mouth. You're not saying it with your, with your voice. But your very action is proclaiming your confidence that by the grace of God, you are found in the Lord. That you are found in Jesus. As Paul said, not having a righteousness of your own that comes through the law. 
When you come forward, you are proclaiming with confidence that you are found in Christ and right before God, not because of your obedience, not because of your zeal, not because of your determination, not because of the family you're from, not because of any of those things at all. But you stand right before God. You have a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. And now, you know that there is no condemnation for those who are in the Lord. You know in him your citizenship is in heaven. You know because of him that the good work that God began in you, he's going to complete. You know because of him a a renewed eagerness and a renewed joy that awaits with confidence his sure and certain return and an eternity that you're to have in his presence. Friends, in just a couple of minutes, you're you're going to get to respond to God's word and receive this meal with great hope. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we we are glad that you are here. And I want to give you a little instruction as well. In just a few minutes, when you see people stand and, and begin to walk forward to receive communion, I want to ask that you just remain where you are because the thing that we want you to receive this morning It's not simply bread and and juice. We want you to receive Jesus. So when we come forward, we're proclaiming with confidence that we know we're right before God because of the work of God in our place through his son. This morning, we want you to have that same confidence. We want you to know the joy, the love, the peace, the hope of God that's found in his son. Friends, as we start our our Advent season, as we take our time to look through Paul's encouragement to the church and what standing firm looks like in the time between Jesus' comings, let me just end with this. Brothers and sisters, friends whom I love, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the hope of the gospel. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to give you a chance to reflect on God's word as we respond this morning. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to call us to endure that you love us enough to give us the power in your Son and your Spirit to do the very thing that you call us to. We, We thank you that you love us enough that in our endurance by your Spirit, through the grace that you have shown us in your Son, we get to taste the fullness of your joy. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do the work in each of our hearts that only you can do and you would bring us to a place where we could Stand firm with confident expectation, knowing who you are and what you have done for us through Christ, and standing firm with an eagerness and a watchfulness and a desire to see you again and to know the joy that's found in you for all of eternity. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do these very things in our heart in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. 
For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.